be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Good evening. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the world's sleepiest podcast, designed to help you fall asleep through relaxing stories and hypnotic meditation. I'm your host, Andrew, and I'm delighted that you've joined me tonight. I'm here to help calm your mind and send you into a peaceful night's sleep. If you find this podcast effective, please consider subscribing so you can stay up to date with new weekly episodes and fall asleep consistently each night. Additionally, if you would like to receive exclusive content or make a request for the next episode, please visit sendmetosleep.com slash podcast and sign up for our free newsletter. That's sendmetosleep.com slash podcast. For tonight's sleep story, I'll be reading Gulliver's Travels, A Voyage to Lilliput, Chapter 3 and 4, by Jonathan Swift. This podcast is most effective when you are able to switch off from the outside world, which is best achieved by wearing headphones. Tonight's episode is sponsored by Cocoon. Cocoon is the world's first intelligent, sleep-aiding headphones designed for ultimate comfort. Cocoon Headphones combines premium audio, noise cancellation, comfort-focused design, and intelligent sensors to monitor your relaxation and sleep. On average, users fall asleep 30% faster when using Cocoon Headphones. To order a pair of your own, and receive a 30-day risk-free trial, please visit cocoon.io and use code SENDMETOSLEEP at checkout for an exclusive 10% discount on your purchase. That's cocoon, K-O-K-O-O-N dot I-O, and use code SENDMETOSLEEP with no spaces at checkout for a 10% discount on your purchase. All links and information are in the show notes. Now, that's enough endorsement for this episode. So, let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 3 My gentleness and good behaviour has gained so far on the emperor and his court, and indeed upon the army and people in general, that I began to conceive hopes of getting my liberty in a short time. I took all possible methods to cultivate this favourable disposition. The natives came, by degrees, to be less apprehensive of any danger from me. I would sometimes lie down and let five or six of them dance on my hand, and at last the boys and girls would venture to come and play at hide-and-seek in my hair. I had now made a good progress in understanding and speaking the language the emperor had a mind one day to entertain me with several of the country shows, wherein they exceed all nations I have known, both for dexterity and magnificence. I was diverted with none so much as that of the rope dancers performed upon a slender white thread, extended about two feet and twelve inches from the ground, upon which I shall desire liberty, with the reader's patience, to enlarge a little. The diversion is only practised by those persons who are candidates for great employments, 
and high favour at court. They are trained in this art from their youth and are not always of noble birth or liberal education. When a great office is vacant, either by death or disgrace, which often happens, five or six of those candidates petition the emperor to entertain his majesty and the court with a dance on the rope, and whoever jumps the highest without falling succeeds in the office. Very often the chief ministers themselves are commanded to show their skill, and to convince the emperor that they have not lost their faculty. Flipnap, the treasurer, is allowed to cut a caper on the straight rope, at least an inch higher than any other lord in the whole empire. I have seen him do the somerset several times together, upon a trencher fixed on a rope which is no thicker than a common pack thread in England. My friend Reldrezel, principal secretary for private affairs, is, in my opinion, if I am not partial, the second after the treasurer. The rest of the great officers are much upon a par. These diversions are often attended with fatal accidents, whereof great numbers are on record. I myself have seen two or three candidates break a limb, but the danger is much greater when the ministers themselves are commanded to show their dexterity, for by contending to excel themselves and their fellows, they strain so far that there is hardly one of them who has not received a fall, and some of them two or three. It was assured that, a year or two before my arrival, Flimnap would infallibly have broke his neck if one of the king's cushions that accidentally lay on the ground had not weakened the force of his fall. There is likewise another diversion, which is only shown before the emperor and empress and first minister upon particular occasions. The emperor lays on the table three fine silken threads of six inches long. One is blue, the other red, and the third green. These threads are proposed as prizes for those persons whom the emperor has a mind to distinguish by a peculiar mark of his favour. The ceremony is performed in His Majesty's Great Chamber of State, where the candidates are to undergo a trial of dexterity very different from the former, and such as I have not observed the least resemblance of in any other country of the new or old world. The Emperor holds a stick in his hands, both ends parallel to the horizon, while the candidates advancing, one by one, sometimes leap over the stick, sometimes creep under it, backward and forward, several times, according as the stick is advanced or depressed. Sometimes the emperor holds one end of the stick, and his first minister the other. Sometimes the minister has it entirely to himself. Whoever performs his part with most agility, 
and holds out the longest in leaping and creeping, is rewarded with the blue-coloured silk. The red is given to the next, and the green to the third, which they all wear girt twice round about the middle. And you see few great persons about this court who are not adorned with one of these girdles. The horses of the army, and those of the royal stables, having been daily led before me, were no longer shy, but would come up to my very feet without starting. The riders would leap them over my hand as I held it on the ground, and one of the emperor's huntsmen, upon a large courser, took my foot, shoe and all, which was indeed a prodigious leap. I had the good fortune to divert the emperor one day after a very extraordinary manner. I desired he would order several sticks of two feet high and the thickness of an ordinary cane to be brought to me whereupon his majesty commanded the master of his woods to give directions accordingly, and the next morning six woodmen arrived with as many carriages, drawn by eight horses to each. I took nine of these sticks and fixed them firmly in the ground in a quadrangular figure, two feet and a half square. I took four other sticks and tied them parallel at each corner, about two feet from the ground. Then I fastened my handkerchief to the nine sticks that stood erect and extended it on all sides till it was tight at the top of a drum and four parallel sticks rising about five inches higher than the handkerchief, served as ledges on each side. When I had finished my work, I desired the emperor to let a troop of his best horses, twenty-four in number, come and exercise upon this plain. His majesty approved of the proposal, and I took them up, one by one, in my hands, ready mounted and armed, with the proper officers to exercise them. As soon as they got into order, they divided into two parties, performed mock skirmishes, discharged blunt arrows, drew their swords, fled and pursued, attacked and retired, and in short discovered the best military discipline I ever beheld. The parallel sticks secured them and their horses from falling over the stage, and the emperor was so much delighted that he ordered this entertainment to be repeated several days, and once was pleased to be lifted up and given the word of command, and with great difficulty persuaded even the empress herself to let me hold her in her close chair within two yards of the stage when she was able to take a full view of the whole performance. It was my good fortune that no ill accident happened in these entertainments, only once a fiery horse that belonged to one of the captains, pawing with his hoof, struck a hole in my handkerchief, and his foot slipping, he overthrew his rider and himself, but I immediately relieved them both, and covering the hole with one hand, 
I set down the troop with the other, in the same manner as I took them up. The horse that fell was strained in the left shoulder, but the rider got no hurt, and I repaired my handkerchief as well as I could. However, I would not trust to the strength of it any more in such dangerous enterprises. About two or three days before I was set at liberty, as I was entertaining the court with this kind of feat, there arrived an express to inform his majesty that some of his subjects, riding near the place where I was first taken up, had seen a great black substance, had seen a great black substance lying on the around, very oddly shaped, extending its edges round, as wide as his majesty's bedchamber, and rising up in the middle as high as a man, that it was no living creature, as they at first apprehended, for it lay on the grass without motion, and some of them had walked round it several times, that, by mounting upon each other's shoulders, they had got to the top, which was flat and even, and, stamping upon it, they found that it was hollow within, that they humbly conceived it might be something belonging to the man-mountain, and if his majesty pleased, they would undertake to bring it with only five horses. I presently knew what they meant, and was glad at heart to receive this intelligence. It seems, upon my first reaching the shore after our shipwreck, I was in such confusion that before I came to the place where I went to sleep, my hat, which I had fastened with a string to my head while I was rowing, and had stuck on all the time I was swimming, fell off after I came to land. The string, as I conjecture, breaking by some accident, which I never observed, but thought my hat had been lost at sea. I entreated his imperial majesty to give orders it might be brought to me as soon as possible, describing to him the use and the nature of it, and the next day the wagoners arrived with it but not in a very good condition. They had bored two holes in the brim within an inch and a half of the edge, and fastened two hooks in the holes. These hooks were tied by a long cord to the harness, and thus my hat was dragged along for above half an English mile. But, the ground in that country being extremely smooth and level, it received less damage than I expected. Two days after this adventure, the Emperor, having ordered that part of his army which quarters in and about his metropolis to be in readiness, took a fancy of diverting himself in a very singular manner. He desired I would stand like a colossus, with my legs as far asunder as I conveniently could. He then commanded his general, who was an old experienced leader and a great patron of mine, to draw upon the troops in close order and march them under me, the foot by twenty-four abreast, and the horse by sixteen, with drums beating, 
colors flying, and pikes advanced. This body consisted of three thousand foot, pain of death, that every soldier in his march should observe the strictest decency with regard to my person, which however could not prevent some of the younger officers from turning up their eyes as they passed under me, and, to confess the truth, my breeches were at the time in so ill a condition that they afforded some opportunities for laughter and admiration. I had sent so many memorials and petitions for my liberty, that his majesty at length mentioned the matter, first in the cabinet, and then in a full council, where it was opposed by none, except Skyresh Bolgolum, who was pleased, without any provocation, to be my mortal enemy but it was carried against him by the whole board, and confirmed by the emperor. That minister was Galbet, or admiral of the realm, very much in his master's confidence, and a person well versed in affairs, but of a morose and sour complexion. However, he was at length persuaded to comply, but prevailed that the articles and conditions upon which I should be set free, and to which I must swear, should be drawn up by himself. These articles were brought to me by Skyresh Bulgalum in person, attended by two under-secretaries and several persons of distinction. After they were read, it was demanded to swear to the performance of them, first in the manner of my own country, and afterwards in the method prescribed by their laws, which was to hold my right foot in my left hand and to place the middle finger of my right hand on the crown of my head, and my thumb on the tip of my right ear. But because the reader may be curious to have some idea of the style and manner of expression peculiar to that people, as well as to know the article upon which I recovered my liberty, I have made a translation of the whole instrument, word for word, as near as I was able, which I here offer to the public. Golbasto, Momoramum, Elvame, Gurdillo, Shefin, Muli Uli Gue, most mighty emperor of Lilliput, delight and terror of the universe, whose dominions extend five thousand blust rugs, about twelve miles in circumference, to the extremities of the globe, monarch of all monarchs, taller than the sons of men whose feet press down to the centre, and whose head strikes against the sun, at whose nod the princes of the earth shake their knees, pleasant as the spring, comfortable as the summer, fruitful as autumn, dreadful as winter, his most sublime majesty, proposes to the man-mountain, lately arrived at our celestial dominions, the following articles, which, by a solemn oath, he shall oblige to perform. 
first, the man-mountain shall not depart from our dominions without our license under our great seal. Second, he shall not presume to come into our metropolis without our express order, at which time the inhabitants shall have two hours warning to keep within doors. Third, the said man-mountain shall confine his walks to our principal high-roads, and not offer to walk or lie down in a meadow or field of corn. Fourth, as he walks the said roads, he shall take the utmost care not to trample upon the bodies of any of our loving subjects, their houses, or carriages, nor take any of our subjects into his hands without their own consent. Fifth, if an express requires extraordinary dispatch, the man-mountain shall be obliged to carry, in his pocket, the messenger and horse a six days journey, once in every moon, and return the said messenger back, if so required, safe to our imperial presence. Sixth, he shall be our ally against our enemies in the island of Blefuscu, and do his utmost to destroy their fleet, which is now preparing to invade us. Seventh, that the said man-mountain shall, at his time of leisure, be aiding and assisting our workmen in helping to raise certain great stones towards covering the wall of the principal park and other our royal buildings. Eighth, that the said man-mountain shall, in two moons' time, deliver in an exact survey of the circumference of our dominion by a computation of his own paces round the coast. Lastly, that, upon his solemn oath to observe all the above articles, the said man-mountain shall have a daily allowance of meat and drink sufficient for the support of 1,724 of our subjects, with free access to our royal person and other marks of our favour, given at our palace at Belfabarak, the twelfth day of the ninety-first moon of our reign. I swore and subscribed to these articles with great cheerfulness and content, although some of them were not so honourable as I could have wished, which proceeded wholly from the malice of Skyresh Bologlum, the High Admiral, whereupon my chains were immediately unlocked, and I was at full liberty. The Emperor himself, in person, did me the honour to be by at the whole ceremony. I made my acknowledgments by prostrating myself at His Majesty's feet, but he commanded me to rise, and after my gracious expressions, which, to avoid the censure of vanity, I shall not repeat, he added that he hoped I should prove a useful servant and well deserve 
all the favour he had already conferred upon me, or might do for the future. The reader may please to observe that, in the last article of the recovery of my liberty, the Emperor stipulates to allow me a quantity of meat and drink sufficient for the support of 1,724 Lilliputians. Some time after, asking a friend at court how they came to fix on that determinate number, he told me that His Majesty's mathematicians, having taken the height of my body by the help of a quadrant, and finding it to exceed theirs in proportion of twelve to one, they concluded from the similarity of their bodies that mine must contain at least 1,724 of theirs, and consequently would require as much food as was necessary to support that number of Lilliputians by which the reader may conceive an idea of the ingenuity of that people, as well as the prudent and exact economy of so great a prince. Chapter 4 The first request I made, after I had obtained my liberty, was that I might have license to see Mildendo, the metropolis, which the emperor easily granted me, but with a special charge to do no hurt either to the inhabitants or their houses. The people had notice, by proclamation, of my design to visit the town. The wall which encompassed it is two feet and a half high, and at least eleven inches broad, so that a coach and horses may be driven very safely round it, and it is flanked with strong towers at ten feet distance. I stepped over the great western gate, and passed very gently, and sibling through the two principal streets, only in my short waistcoat, for fear of damaging the roofs and eaves of the houses with the skirt of my coat. I walked with the utmost circumspection, to avoid treading on any stragglers who might remain in the streets, although the orders were very strict that all people should keep in their houses at their own peril. The garret windows and tops of houses were so crowded with spectators that I thought in all my travels I had not seen a more populous place. The city is an exact square, each side of the wall being five hundred feet long. The two great streets which run across and divide it into four quarters are five feet wide. The lanes and alleys, which I could not enter, but only view them as I pass, are from twelve to eight inches. The town is capable of holding five hundred thousand souls. The houses are from three to five stories. The shops and markets well provided. The Emperor's Palace is in the centre of the city, where the two great streets meet. 
It is enclosed by a wall of two feet high and twenty feet distance from the buildings. I had his majesty's permission to step over this wall, and, the space being so wide between that and the palace, I could easily view it on every side. The outward court is a square of forty feet, and includes two other courts. In the inmost are the royal apartments, which I was very desirous to see, but found it extremely difficult, for the great gates, from one square into another, were but eighteen inches high, and seven inches wide. Now the buildings of the outer court were at least five feet high, and it was impossible for me to stride over them without infinite damage to the pile, though the walls were strongly built of hewn stone, and four inches thick. At the same time the emperor had a great desire that I should see the magnificence of his palace, but this I was not able to do till three days after, which I spent in cutting down with my knife some of the largest trees in the royal park, about a hundred yards distance from the city. Of these trees I made two stools, each about three feet high, and strong enough to bear my weight. The people having received notice a second time, I went again through the city to the palace with my two stalls in my hands. When I came to the side of the outer court, I stood upon one stall and took the other in my hand. This I lifted over the roof, and gently set it down on the space between the first and second court, which was eight feet wide. I then stepped over the building very conveniently from one stall to the other, and drew up the first after me with a hooked stick. By this contrivance I got into the innermost court, and lying down upon my side, I applied my face to the window of the middle stories, which were left open on purpose, and discovered the most splendid apartments that can be imagined. There I saw the empress and young princes in several lodgings, with their chief attendants about them. Her imperial majesty was pleased to smile very graciously upon me, and gave me out of the window her hand to kiss. But I shall not anticipate the reader with further descriptions of this kind, because I reserve them for a greater work which is now almost ready for the press, containing a general description of the empire, from its first direction, through a long series of princes, with a particular account of their wars and politics, laws, learning, and religion, their plants and animals, their peculiar manners and customs, with other matters curious and useful, my chief design at present being only to relate such events and transactions as happened to the public or to myself during a residence of about nine months in that empire. One morning, about a fortnight after I had obtained my liberty, 
Rel Dressel, Principal Secretary, as they style him, for private affairs, came to my house attended by only one servant. He ordered his coach to wait at a distance, and desired I would give him an hour's audience, which I readily consented to, on account of his quality and personal merits, as well as of the many good offices he had done me during my solicitations at court. I offered to lie down that he might the more conveniently reach my ear, but he chose rather to let me hold him in my hand during our conversation. He began with compliments on my liberty, said he might pretend to some merit in it, but, however, added that if it had not been for the present situation of things at court, perhaps I might not have obtained it so soon, for, he added, as flourishing a condition as we may appear to be in to foreigners, we labour under two mighty evils, a violent faction at home, and the danger of an invasion by a most potent enemy from abroad. As to the first, you are to understand that for about seventy moons past there have been two struggling parties in this empire, under the names of Tramixan and Slamixan from the high and low heels of their shoes, by which they distinguished themselves. It is alleged, indeed, that the high heels are most agreeable to our ancient constitution, but, however this be, His Majesty has determined to make use only of low heels in the administration of the government and all offices in the gift of the crown, as you cannot but observe, and particularly that his majesty's imperial heels are lower, at least, by a drawl than any of his court. Drawl is a measure about the fourteenth part of an inch. The animosities between these two parties run so high that they will neither eat, nor drink, nor talk with each other. We compute the Tramixan, or high heels, to exceed us in number, but the power is wholly on our side. We apprehend his imperial highness the heir to the crown, to have some tendency towards the high heels. At least we can plainly discover that one of his heels is higher than the other, which gives him a hobble in his gait. Now, in the midst of these intestine disquiets, we are threatened with an invasion from the island of Blefuscu, which is the other great empire of the universe, almost as large and powerful as this of his majesty. For as to what we have heard you affirm, that there are other kingdoms and states in the world, inhabited by human creatures as large as yourself, our philosophers are in much doubt, and would rather conjecture that you dropped from the moon, or one of the stars, because it is certain that a hundred mortals of your bulk would in a short time destroy all the fruits and cattle of his majesty's dominion. Besides, our histories of six thousand moons make no mention 
of any other regions than the two great empires of Lilliput and Blefuscu, which two mighty powers have, as I was going to tell you, been engaged in a most obstinate war for six and thirty moons past. It began upon the following occasion. It is allowed on all hands that the primitive way of breaking eggs before we eat them was upon the larger end, but his present majesty's grandfather, while he was a boy, going to eat an egg and breaking it according to the ancient practice, happened to cut one of his fingers, whereupon the emperor, his father, published an edict commanding all his subjects upon great penalties to break the smaller end of the eggs. The people so highly resented this law that our histories tell us there have been six rebellions raised on that account, wherein one emperor lost his life and another his crown. These civil commotions were constantly fomented by the monarchs of Blefuscu, and when they were quelled, the exiles always fled for refuge to that empire. It is computed that eleven thousand persons have at several times suffered death, rather than submit to break their eggs at the smaller end. Many hundred large volumes have been published upon this controversy, but the books of the Big Endians have been long forbidden, and the whole party rendered incapable by law of holding employments. During the court of these troubles, the Empress of Blefusca did frequently expostulate by their ambassadors, accusing us of making a schism in religion by offering against a fundamental doctrine of our great prophet Lustrog in the 54th chapter of the Blondecral, which is their Al-Koran. This, however, is thought to be a mere strain upon the next, for the words are these, that all true believers break their eggs at the convenient end, and which is the convenient end seems, in my humble opinion, to be left to every man's conscience or at least in the power of the chief magistrate to determine. Now, the big Endian exiles have found so much credit in the emperor of Blefuscu's court, and so much private assistance and encouragement from their party here at home, that a bloody war has been carried on between the two empires for sixty and thirty moons, with various success, during which time we have lost forty capital ships, and a much a greater number of smaller vessels, together with thirty thousand of our best seamen and soldiers and the damage received by the enemy is reckoned to be somewhat greater than ours. However, they have now equipped a numerous fleet, and are just preparing to make a descent upon us, and his imperial majesty, placing great confidence in your valour and strength, has commanded me to lay this account of his affairs before you. I desired the secretary to present my humble duty to the emperor, 
and to let him know that I thought it would not become me, who was a foreigner, to interfere with parties, but I was ready, with the hazard of my life, to defend his person and state against all invaders. <laughs>